0: You're listening to WRCT Pittsburgh, and this is Overheard. Scott Ritter was the former United Nations Senior Weapons Inspector and Ambassador Edward Peck, the former chief mission in Iraq. They spoke yesterday in a town meeting on U.S. foreign policy, what mainstream media don't tell us about Iran and Iraq. WRCT recorded their conversation.
1: Thank you very much for coming out on a very, very cold night. Uh, From having a few minutes to chat with our two visitors tonight, I am certain that you're going to find it fascinating. Uh, I am Dan Simpson. I'm an associate editor of the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Prior to that, for 35 years, I was an American Foreign Service officer. So you can tell from that that my passion is foreign affairs. Right now, I'm living in mortal terror that the problems of the economy will take people's minds off the subject that brought you here tonight, which is the Iraq War, and we hope it will be just that. Uh, I want to thank uh, the organizations uh, that have sponsored this evening, Carnegie Mellon University, Physicians for Social Responsibility, Consortium of Educational Resources uh, on Islamic Studies, Thomas Merton Center, American Friends Service Committee, University of Pittsburgh's Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies, Center for International Legal Education, and the Global Studies Program at the University Center for International Studies, uh, which is quite a bit. Uh, the lady who has been uh, the prime organizer is, of this is Patricia Hermeneau uh, of the Ridgeway Center. And uh, she tells me that they haven't quite met expenses, so if you're still feeling semi-generous as you go out the door, she's the pretty lady in the red coat with a pot. So put, put something into it. Imagine that it's a wedding or, or something. Okay. We're, just We're going to have uh, two speakers tonight, and they will talk for perhaps no more than 20 minutes and then we want to leave plenty of time for questions and answers. Uh, The two are Scott Ritter and Ambassador Ed Peck. Uh, Ed tells me that Scott's going to start. I I hope that Scott agrees to that. Scott Ritter is someone that I'm sure uh, you heard of in the period leading up to the Iraq War. He was one of... The UN's most senior weapons inspectors in Iraq between 1991 and 1998, seven years, after having served for eight years as an intelligence officer in the United States Marine Corps. As a Marine, he conducted arms inspections in the former Soviet Union and provided analysis of Iraq's missile capacity to General Schwarzkopf in the 1991 Gulf War, the first Gulf War. The important thing to know about Scott Ritter is that he was right. So said Cy Hirsch, uh, a very respected journalist who's also written about these issues. I add that Scott has brought, well, he didn't bring them because he says he refuses to carry such things, but two of his books are for sale at the back on a table, and uh, I think that that might give you a chance to have his views at greater length. Uh, I'll let Scott go, and then I'll introduce uh, Ambassador Ed Peck afterward. Scott
2: Ritter. Well, thank you very much for the uh, wonderful words of introduction. It's an honor and a privilege to be here tonight to talk with you about uh, issues of relevance, not just theoretical relevance, but practical day-to-day relevance. Before we start, I just want to put this talk in, uh, in perspective. I'm a 12-year veteran of the United States Marine Corps, and nothing rates higher in my mind than the lives of the men and women who join the Marines, joined the Air Force, joined the Army, joined the Navy, who serve our nation proudly. We may disagree with the policies that they are asked to implement, but never should we confuse any opposition or strong feelings we might have about a given policy and transfer that that negative thought towards these wonderful Americans who honor us with their service wearing our uniform semper fi sir now as as we speak here tonight we'll continue to put this in perspective somewhere in iraq somewhere in afghanistan one of our service members is waking up, putting on their uniform, lacing up their boots. And they will die today. They will die. Sometime later, a family will be notified of that death. War is a horrible tragedy. And we should never, ever forget that when we discuss things such as esoteric policies, the role of the media, etc., You know, sometimes we get so caught up in the debate here at home that we forget to put a human face on what it is we're actually debating and discussing about. It's lives, ladies and gentlemen, American lives, and the lives of Iraqis, Afghanis, and others who are impacted by these policies. I just wanted to start off by putting that in perspective. Twelve-year veteran of the Marine Corps, and I'm about dead set against this war we're waging in Iraq. Not because I'm anti-war. I am. <laughs> but I also recognize that sometimes you've got to do what you've got to do to defend yourself. I always tell people, you know, I, I love dogs. i got a couple of them at home. Every once in a while they irritate me by making a mess on a rug or something like that. But, you know, I don't kick them. I don't beat them. Um, I pet them. I love dogs. I don't believe in cruelty to animals. But if there's a rabid dog running around my neighborhood, I shoot it. I'm against war because I understand what war stands for. It's a manifestation of the worst of mankind, man killing man, human killing human. But I understand there comes a time and a place where you've got to stand up and fight for what you believe in. There are things worth fighting for. There are things worth dying for. We just have an obligation as Americans to ensure that before we ask the brave men and women who wear the uniform of our armed services to fight and die, that it's a cause-worthy of that sacrifice. Now we can talk about Iraq and we will. Some people might be surprised when I tell you I'm not going to delve too much into the issue of weapons of mass destruction and the debate on whether or not there were WMD in Iraq at the time of the invasion or not. That debate's over ladies and gentlemen. Done. They weren't there. We got rid of them. Accept it. And also accept the fact that frankly speaking that line of debate is irrelevant when we speak about the situation in Iraq today, a hundred and sixty thousand Americans whose lives are on the line, and we really wanted to belittle what they do by delving into whether or not the president exaggerated, misrepresented, or falsified data that's a debate to be had by our politicians and those who deal with the rule of law and whether or not a politician should be held accountable to the rule of law. But if we're speaking about the situation in Iraq, let's talk about today. And there's one word that defines what's going on in Iraq today, and that's the surge. That was two words, but we'll just drop the the and we'll deal with surge. I'm a Marine, guys. I have trouble with math and the English (laughs) language, so forgive me. The surge. The surge is what we should be talking about. The surge dominates everything that is... We, we we discuss when it comes to the issue of Iraq. It dominates it so much that our politicians no longer talk about Iraq. It's a done deal. I woke up in California the other day, opened up my hotel room, and there's a copy of USA Today. Headline: Baghdad is 75 percent secure. Hallelujah! I said the war's over. We can go home. Done. We won. The surge succeeded. And that's what we're being told by our politicians by the media, that we have already crossed the Rubicon. It's done. Tipping point achieved. All the difficulties of the past are finished. The surge has succeeded. And when they cite the statistics that show there has been a dramatic drop in the number of deaths, a dramatic drop in the violence in Iraq, one can only embrace that conclusion if you rely on that data alone. But that's not the true story, ladies and gentlemen. That's not the reality. One of the problems we face here in the United States when we discuss the issue of Iraq is that we are discussing it from a domestic American political perspective. There is a dynamic about America that dominates, not the reality on the ground in Iraq. As an old-time intelligence officer, and it's hard to say in the company of Ambassador Peck because I... He won't allow me to use the term old in relation to him. He can still considers himself to be young. So, so I'll just say as a veteran, but he won't even let me use that word. I'll say as somebody with a, just a tiny little bit of experience in the intelligence business, I was trained from the very beginning. Two things. One, my job wasn't to tell my boss what he or she wanted to hear. My job was to put the facts on the table and let them make a decision what they wanted to do, but to ensure that the data, factual data, well-assessed data was made available. The second thing is problem-solving. If you're going to solve a problem, the first thing that has to occur is to define the problem. Because a solution void of a definition of what you're trying to solve is no solution at all. It's a waste of time and effort. So imagine, therefore, here in the United States, I think we're all in agreement whether you're for the war or against the war, we're seeking to solve a problem in Iraq. Why, therefore, do we continue to allow the definition of the Iraqi problem to be defined by an American dynamic, domestic dynamic. Go back to the discussions, the hearings with General Petraeus Ambassador Crocker before the Congress in the fall of 2007, as Congress sagely nodded their head in support of the surge. Why? Because polling showed the American public was supportive of such a policy. Well, I really don't care what the American public is in support of or not in support of when I'm solving a problem that's defined by a reality in Iraq. The only thing that counts when we come to the issue of solving the Iraq problem is ground truth in Iraq. And ladies and gentlemen, Iraq is a mortally wounded nation. When they say the surge is succeeding and they cite a reduction in the level of violence, one therefore can presume that somehow fresh life has been breathed in to this wounded body. Not so. The reality of Iraq, ladies and gentlemen, is that it suffered a sucking chest wound. Lung has collapsed. The body is bleeding out. And all we've done with the surge is cosmetically treat it by placing a bandage over it so we're no longer seeing the wound. The surge has not resolved any of the major fundamental problems that exist in Iraq. The surge has not solved the issue of Sunni-Shia antagonism. In fact, it's exacerbated because one of the byproducts of the surge is the successful completion of ethnic cleansing in Iraq, where neighborhoods in Baghdad that once, where once Sunni and Shia lived side by side have been totally cleansed and divided by a concrete barrier with limited crossing points. This is victory. The only reason why violence has dropped in western Iraq is because we've bought off the Sunni tribes, the so-called awakening. We've given them arms, ammunition, training, equipment, and we've bought them time so they can organize. And they're organizing not because they suddenly become pro-American, but because they are anti-Shia. And they want to ensure that the Sunni voice is represented in the future of Iraq. And they will fight and die for that right. They haven't had that fight yet, ladies and gentlemen. That's a fight that's still awaiting. One of the biggest killers in Iraq was the Shia uprising of the Muqdar al-Sadr, the Mahdi army. They have not surrendered. All they did is declare a unilateral ceasefire, a unilateral ceasefire on their terms, and use the intervening time to arm, train, and equip so that they can fight not only Sunni extremists, but also what they deem to be an Iranian-backed Shia element in Iraq, the so-called Government of Iraq. I say so-called because it's derived from one of the biggest farces of modern history. The purple finger revolution of January 2005. that was widely applauded in the United States. We even had American politicians go so far as to dip their finger in purple to signify somehow a solidarity with the people of Iraq who voted for a government that doesn't represent the people of Iraq. The one bastion of security in Iraq is falling apart as we speak northern Iraq. Where the Kurds are, Kurds, interesting term. Which Kurd are we talking about? The P-U-K, the K-D-P, perhaps the P-K-K, or the P-J-A-K. And we can go on and on and on with an alphabet soup of Kurdish groups that are neither unified or homogeneous in their approach to solving a problem. Iraq is a broken nation, ladies and gentlemen, and we claim victory. I'll leave you with this thought on Iraq. 2007, the year of the great victory of the surge, was the bloodiest year in Iraq for American forces. 2008 will be even worse, because sometime around the summer of 2008, that cosmetic dressing we placed over the sucking wound that is modern post-Saddam Iraq will come off, and we'll be left with a body dying, bleeding out, unable to gain oxygen. And because our politicians have not been focused on coming up with a real solution, there will be none to have. That's the reality of Iraq, and you're not hearing that in the mainstream media, and you're not hearing that from our politicians. And that's the good news, ladies and gentlemen. Let me give you the bad news. Because right across the border to the east is a nation called Iran. And because the situation in Iraq is so horrible, a lot of people focus or say there's no way we could go to war with Iran. I'll give you another prediction, ladies and gentlemen. I say there's an 80% chance between Now, in the end of the year, the United States will initiate military conflict with Iran. It will be done because the President has convinced the American public and convinced the Congress of the United States that Iran constitutes a grave threat to the national security of the United States. Twofold. One in nuclear weapons, the other in Iran's status as the largest state sponsor of terror in the world today. Now, one would say, well, the nuclear weapon issue should be shut down. Didn't, after all, we have a national intelligence estimate that almost gleefully exclaimed that Iran had stopped its nuclear program in 2003, that it's not ongoing today, I, for one, reject the national intelligence estimate because to accept its finding of no ongoing program, which directly contradicted the 2005 draft national intelligence estimate, which said there's an active ongoing nuclear weapons program, now they say there isn't. And a lot of people jumped on that, wanted to embrace it. But to accept that finding, you have to accept the premise that there was a nuclear weapons program in Iraq in 2003. And the bottom line, ladies and gentlemen, is that there is no data whatsoever to sustain that argument. None. The CIA admits they have no hard fact. It's purely an assessment driven from an internal desire to paint Iran in a negative picture in the same way we painted Iraq in a negative picture in the lead-up to the 2003 invasion telling the Iraqis they had to declare their biological weapons program, and failure to do so would constitute a material breach of the Security Council resolutions. But what if there's not a biological weapons program to declare? Today we have the President saying that the Iranians must declare their nuclear program, and failure to do so will be proof positive that Iran has continued to pursue nuclear ambition. But what if there is not a nuclear weapons program to declare? Well, some people say, my ascendant inspectors. We have had inspectors there for years. And the inspectors have come back with one clear understanding that there is no evidence to sustain the assertion that Iran is pursuing nuclear weapons. Now we're being told Iran is an irresponsible nation, a nation supporting terrorism. And the most recent manifestation of their irresponsibility, of course, is the Miami Vice-type incident that occurred in the Straits of Hormuz, with speedboats challenging American guided missile destroyers. It turns out that that, too, wasn't quite exactly what happened. The United States, far from being able to tell the truth unambiguously, cobbled together video and audio uh, in a false representation of what occurred. But the president used this to reinforce his argument in both Israel when he visited Israel and in the Gulf Arab states of Iran as a grave threat. Ladies and gentlemen, we're on the brink of war with Iran. And yet our politicians and our media are sleepwalking. This is not part of the national debate. And a war with Iran will manifest itself in terms that are orders of magnitude worse than the war in Iraq. These are things that we should all reflect on when we talk about the direction our nation is heading in the Middle East today. This presentation is not meant at all to be anti-Israeli, to be anti-American. It's meant, rather, to be pro-truth. This isn't about positioning Iran to dominate the Middle East. This is about positioning the United States to peacefully coexist in a world in a manner which does not reflect the ultimate national hubris, a situation where 300 million Americans feel they have an inalienable right to dictate the terms of coexistence with 6.8 billion other people. Think about that for a while. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking
1: No, Now, I'm sure you don't have any questions for him, but <laughs> you'll have a chance in a minute. Uh, Now we will have uh, Ambassador Ed Peck. Uh, Ambassador Peck served as chief of mission in Iraq and Mauritania. He also served in American embassies in Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Egypt, to give you some idea of his understanding of that region. He was deputy director of the Cabinet Task Force on Terrorism, Uh, At the uh, Reagan White House, he was deputy coordinator of covert intelligence programs at the State Department and liaison officer to the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the Pentagon with two tours of active duty as a paratrooper when he was much younger. He didn't jump out over Pittsburgh. He served from the rank, they tell me, that he served from the rank of private to up to the level of first lieutenant. If I read correctly, you've also met Hassan Nasrallah, who's the head of Hezbollah in Lebanon, which gives you some idea of the breadth of his experience and his contacts. Um, I present to you Ambassador Ed Peck.
0: Uh, You can perhaps understand that I may have made a tactical mistake in letting Scott Ritter speak first. It's difficult. That's an act that's very hard to follow. But I wanted to tell you some things that I think you need to think about. The idea here is to get you to think about some of the things that Scott has mentioned upon which I would like to elaborate to a slight degree. Let's start with Iraq, a place where I lived for two and a half years um, in What is the American Embassy now? Uh, Just for your background information, Ryan Crocker, who is the ambassador there now, and I served together in Baghdad. Uh, He was one of the brightest and most capable young Foreign Service officers who had ever worked for me or with whom I had ever worked and is doing the very best he can there. If you make a mental list of everything that you have been told about Iraq by the government, uh, by the media... To make a mental list of everything that you know about Saddam Hussein from the same two sources, and then you cross off those lists, all of the things which have proven to be untrue, you will have a much shorter list. I lived there as a foreigner. I lived there as a foreign diplomat. But I speak Arabic, and I'd served, as Dan mentioned, in a number of other Muslim countries. So I am considered to be reasonably experienced. When I lived there in Baghdad, Iraq was enormously wealthy. They had oil money up to here and loose change the rest of the way. They had one of the highest qualities of life and one of the highest standards of living in the Middle East. Educational systems were booming. The government built roads, put up electricity, irrigated farms, put in drainage. They did housing. They did schools. They did churches. and some of the synagogues that were still there at the time. And everybody was living a pretty good life without a great deal of freedom of speech. Just like almost any country in the world today, if you did not bother the government, the government had no reason to bother you. But if you bothered Saddam's government, uh, they took steps to make sure that you stopped bothering them. But the country was a model of many of the things that we wanted. Think about this. Here was Iraq, a country in which the women were liberated. My principal point of contact at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs was a woman who had a master's degree from George Washington University, just as I did. Her name was Bakr, bright, capable, effective, tough diplomat. Women were liberated. There were no veils. The country was secular. You knew this. This was a secular regime. The Ba'ath Party was founded by a Syrian Christian by the name of Michel Aflak. And his thesis was all Arabs, Christian, Jew, Muslim, Kurd, whatever, working together could raise the country. So Saddam Hussein had in his government Christians and Kurds and Shia and Sunni. In the background, you can hear the Americans saying, hey, great, that's the way to do it, guys. Modernizing the country with all of the economic things that a country with lots of money and a socialist government could take care of. Absolutely good show. And willing and able to stand in the path of possible Iranian expansionist efforts. And every bit of that has been destroyed. Secular? No more. Liberated women? Probably not. Economic booming? No. Economy? Uh Uh-uh. Able to stand in? No. And I ask you, who benefits from what we've done there? No one on the face of this planet has done well because of what we have done and are doing in Iraq. The country, to quote my friend Scott Ritter, is a ruin. It's a cadaver. It's a portable, it's a motive cadaver. But it's dead. It will never and can never be what it was before. Is that good or bad? I don't know. I participated in a panel discussion in Washington, D.C., in which one of the people presenting said the solution for Iraq is for us to partition the country, Kurdish area, Shia area. I said, what a fabulous idea. Look how well that's worked in in, in Palestine, in, in Northern Ireland, in Kashmir. What a tremendous idea. How about Cyprus? That's the way to do it, guys. Let them partition the place so all the people living here who don't belong to that group are going to try to get there before they're killed and vice versa. Also, it smacks just a touch of colonialism. Look how well Africa has worked out as we drew lines back and forth all around it. Question for you. Did you know, do you remember, that Lebanon used to be part of Syria until the French carved it out? I have a Foreign Service colleague whose father was a diplomat, and he was born in Beirut, Syria, in 1929. The French made that a separate country. And Kuwait used to be part of Iraq until the British carved that out. So when Iraqis speak of Kuwait and when Syrians speak of Lebanon, they're talking about something that they perceive was theirs until you guys came along. And there's a key word I just used, perception. I want you to think about this for just a a second. Perception is the only reality. What you perceive to be right is right for you. What she perceives to be good is good for her. But your perception may be different than that of other people. And if you choose... To ignore the fact that other people may have differing perceptions, or far worse, if you decide that their differing perceptions don't matter, you are merely making it that much harder to get wherever you are trying to go. That's the bottom line of American business. What does the customer want? What does the customer perceive in our product that he or she wants? And if you don't do that, you don't have to change your policies or apologize for your policies. And you certainly don't have to abandon your policies. But to give your policies the maximum chances for possible success, you've got to spend a little bit of time trying to understand how those people see what you're doing. And what do they see us doing in the Middle East? Not very many good things. Think about this. When the colonies won their independence from England... And by the way, it's worthwhile remembering that they did this with the help of a lot of terrorists. Terrorists, you remember, are people who go to some other country to fight in that country's wars. Lafayette, Bern von Steuben, Count Kosciusko, who came to America to fight the British, they were terrorists by our definition now, describing people going into Iraq to fight the coalition forces. But... Your freedom fighter is my terrorist and vice versa. I was mentioning earlier tonight that we recently lost, he passed away, one of the commanders of the Lincoln Brigade. The 9,000 Americans who went to Spain to fight the fascists, they were terrorists, right? No, they're freedom fighters. Because our guys are freedom fighters, your guys are terrorists. It's always been that way. How about the Lafayette Escadrille? How about the Eagle Squadron? How about the Flying Tigers? Americans who went to fight in somebody else's war. Were they terrorists? You bet your life, by definition, ours. But if there are guys, they're not terrorists. You mentioned that I met with Hassan Nasrallah. We also met when I was there as an election observer in January of Of 06, I was an election observer in the Gaza Strip when Hamas won. Shortly after that, we were in Beirut, pardon me, in Damascus. We went to Beirut also. In Damascus, where we met with the president of Syria, who, as you may know, was trained as an ophthalmologist in Great Britain, not expecting to be the head of his country. He speaks excellent English, and he told us, he said, you know, Americans don't often come to see me and they're usually not very senior, but every time they come into my office, the Americans metaphorically pound on my desk, and they insist, they demand that right now, this instant, I seal the border with Iraq to stop terrorists from crossing over into Iraq. And what I've learned to do, he said, was to frown thoughtfully and say, you know, you're right could you ask the border patrol from the U.S. to come over and show me how they did it with Mexico so I could emulate their success? And he says the response is usually a heavy silence. Justifiably so, because if we can't do it, well, hey, we know about that. We're, we're all married. We know how we want our wives to behave, our husbands, how the kids to behave. Don't look at how I do it. Just do what I say. And America has that role now. We're running it all, everywhere, everywhere. So in Iraq, we are teaching the rest of the world and relearning for ourselves the true meaning of the word quagmire. Think about that. If we stay there, it is a sure, certain, and unavoidable catastrophe. And if we leave, it's a different Sure, certain and unavoidable catastrophe. You are stuck. I was on a television programme with a prominent individual whose name I won't mention because I've just had dinner.
1: <laughs>
0: and he said and he said, Okay, parenthesis, smart ass, close parenthesis, what would you recommend? I said, get out. At a minimum. We'll stop killing them and they'll stop killing us and that's a start. But you shouldn't have gone there. You had no reason to go there. You had no justification for going there, and you had no plans for what you did when you got there. I spoke at a military officer's uh, training course the other day, and one of the senior people there put up his hand, and he said, I have listened to your jaundiced presentation. Would you be willing to take just a couple of moments and give us a list of things that you think we've done wrong in Iraq. I said, Colonel, I'll save us a lot of time by giving you a list of things that I think we've done right in Iraq, because there aren't any. From day one, you know, protecting the oil ministry, but not the weapons catches. Sending a unit to streak through Baghdad and out the other side so that the people knew the government was gone and not protecting for looting. We had an army chief of staff named Shinseki who lost his job because he said we need at least a quarter of a million men. Because the surge that you mentioned, which has been successful in the eyes of some, would have been a hell of a lot more successful if we'd sent a half a million men, yes. That would have worked as long as they stay there. What are you going to do now if Kurdistan talks about being independent and Turkey says no? Turkey says you will not do that because it has a major heavy impact on our internal affairs. How are you going to settle the issues with Iran, where you get an article in the Washington Post, big headline, a few months back, listen carefully, which said US accuses Iran of meddling in Iraq. (laughs) Boy, if, if they're meddling, what are we doing there? I also saw an article a headline in the same newspaper which depressed me enormously, which said Republicans tell Bush that the war in Iraq is harming the party. Oh, well, gosh, let's worry a lot about that. Harming the party? Goodness gracious. Or as John F. Kennedy would have said, they're hamming the patty, you remember? That's not what's critical here, that the Republican Party is being damaged or the Democrats. That's not what's critical. What are we going to do in that part of the world where it is our belief, our certainty, that democracy is going to take over? Uh, Looking at this audience, I recognize that there are some people here who do not qualify. If you are over the age of 60... Raise your hand if you are perfectly comfortable using every capability of a modern cell phone. I want you to think about that. Good for you, sir. This is a cell phone. I use it to press flowers. The average person of my age looks at a cell phone with the same level of comprehension with which a squid looks at a nuclear submarine, okay? (laughs) Now, it is a piece of hardware. I can hold this thing in my hand, and it comes with an incredibly detailed instruction book that tells you precisely how to use it, but people of my generation don't use a cell phone. Educated, traveled, knowledgeable, well-to-do, we don't use cell phones because we're not used to it. We're not comfortable with it. We're, we're afraid of it, really. Now, let's switch to Iraq and talk about democracy. Democracy is not a piece of hardware. You cannot hold it in your hand. There is no instruction book. It's historical. It's philosophical. It's experiential. And it takes a long time to develop this. We said, okay, Iraq you got a weekend, write a constitution. It took us six years to write one here. It's important to remember that democracy is a process, a long, slow process. Uh, I have to tell this, I mentioned it earlier at another site. I was on a television program with a left-wing wacko and a right-wing nutcase. You know how these things work out. (laughs) And the right-winger was very upset with me And although she was in New York and I was in Washington, she did this. And she said, let us get one thing straight here, Ambassador Beck. And I said, "Peck," And she said, whatever. (laughs) So we're getting along very nicely. And she said, Iraq is going to have a constitution based on ours. They are going to have an American constitution. And I said, you're right. And that is why we have told them forcefully, repetitively, that they're only going to be allowed to have slavery for the first four score in seven years. (laughs) And after only 130 years, they'll be forced to give the women a vote. (laughs) There was heavy silence on the other end. All right, let me try the same experiment here. Raise your hand if you can tell the other members of the audience in which year the United States of America first elected senators instead of having them appointed by state legislatures. Yes, 1913, yes. 1930, thank you, sir. History student, or professor, okay. But, so how the hell do you expect the Iraqis to get there phoom, just like that when they're not even necessarily sure it's the best way? Who says it's the best way? Works for us, except in Florida. <laughs> But we are convinced that, by golly, you're going to be democratic. And how do we get them to understand how important this is? By killing them. Mm -hmm. By definition, you cannot impose democracy. And imposed democracy is a dictatorship. Democracy comes this way, not that way. You cannot force people to make a free choice. But the American people do not understand this because, and I say this to an audience that obviously has come here because Scott and I have some things you may be interested in hearing, that doesn't know an awful lot about the rest of the world and refuses to understand that in the Middle East and in the rest of the world populated by the 1.5 billion people, the United States of America, my nation, your nation, is not seen as a bringer of truth and justice and peace and harmony and international law because of what we have done and are doing in Iraq, in Afghanistan, and what we are facilitating being done in occupied Palestine. I have to bring it up. There are people who don't like it. They don't think it's good. They don't think it's right. I don't think it's going to benefit anybody to do any of these things. But if this is how you demonstrate the values of democracy with bombs, guns, rockets, and helicopters. You're not likely to convert an awful lot of people into that way of thinking, which, if it remains our objective, is being undertaken in an ass-backwards way, because the survivors are not going to love us. Thank you very much. You're listening to Scott Ritter and Ambassador Edward Peck, who spoke at the Carnegie Library of Pittsburgh yesterday evening. This is WRP Pittsburgh, Overheard.
1: Okay, we're going to do questions and answers, and I'll try to catch them around the room. You may either uh, direct your questions to uh, Mr. Ritter or Ambassador Peck, or you can address it to the two of them and let them decide you know, who might like to respond. Mr. Ritter, you spoke, is this working? Yes. You spoke about the media as being such uh, at fault. Can you tell a citizen who wants to keep informed where to go for truthful information?
2: Uh, yes, ma'am. Um there is no single source of information. You know, if, you sit, if, if people are waiting for the magic source, the magic newspaper, the magic television broadcast that's going to give it to them, uh, you're going to wait in vain because it's, it's simply not there. Uh, whenever I hear people say it's the media's fault, and I, you know, I blame the media too. I, I always say, well, wait a minute. They, <laughs> it's, it reminds me of spring in New York. You know, <laughs> snow melts, birds fly back from the south, build nests put eggs in the nest, and the nest the eggs hatch. And little birds come out and go, tweet, 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 tweet. And what they're saying is, mommy, feed me, feed me. And mommy birds up in the tree, and she flies down, and she eats worms, insects, comes back, and she pukes in the throat of every little bird. And they're happy, because they got what they wanted. And that's the American people getting before the, Amer- the TV, turning it on, and going, tweet, 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 tweet. And then they get puked down their throat, and they're happy. It's an that intelligence- won't do. It's an intelligence officer. You you don't rely on a single source. When I ask Americans, become your own intelligence officer, because that's what an informed citizen is. You don't you not parrot you're not a parrot. You don't parrot back that which you get. You gotta think. You gotta engage the supercomputer between this earlobe and this earlobe, and it requires you to direct yourself by asking the question, what do I want to know? Don't turn on the TV and have somebody tell you what you want to know. You ask the question first. What do I want to know? Then you go out and you collect your information. Television, broadcast, internet then you have to process it organize it chronologically assess it and then answer your own question i ask the question i gather the data i answer the question now you have a independently formed point of view And you're the most dangerous constituent a a politician has because you can actually think for your own. There is no magic bullet for information, ladies and gentlemen. Don't rely on the media to tell you the information you need to have. It is your duty and responsibility as a citizen to ask the questions of yourself, then seek out the information and formulate your own independent point of view. It's difficult. It takes time. But nobody said democracy was going to be easy.
1: I'm, I'm going to try I'm, as a journalist I'm going to try not to get paranoid about what he's saying <laughs> as long as you consider the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette to be one of your sources I will be happy <laughs> go ahead uh, at this point uh, Bush Cheney and the neocons have used every technique of uh, diversion to confuse us first they went with WMD then it was oil and uh, democracy, Saddam's a bad guy, and uh, the fact is, these are, to me, these are all diversionary techniques. I wonder if uh, you might share with us uh, some of the insights into what the true global motivation and ambitions of Bush Cheney and the neocons are.
0: You know, that's a, that's a very pertinent, powerful question, sir. And, and um, I was going to put a comment on the end of Scott's, but I don't think I needed to because he pretty much said it all. One of the things that fascinates me about the media uh, <laughs> is the extent to which people in it will write articles saying, this is what the Taliban is looking for, this is what Milosevic wanted, this is what so-and-so is thinking. Yeah, yeah. And how do you know that? But presenting, presenting your own you know, speculation as fact is difficult. In the case of the neocons, the United States of America is not a country, justifiably so, which is, has a reputation throughout the world of solid knowledge and understanding of the rest of the world. Because we don't pay a great deal of attention to that unless it hits a headline or some kind of story. And what we do watch is the stuff that's fed to us, that's regurgitated down our throats uh, from people who think that you should think this and know that. There is a belief by many people in this country that the future of the world, the bright side, lies from converting everybody to democracy. And I have had heated discussions with people who say, look, Don't you accept that if we can get democracy started in Iraq, it will spread like wildfire throughout the Middle East? I say, well, let's think about that for a second. Let's take 100 families from the heart of the Haight-Ashbury district in San Francisco and transplant them to the heart of Kansas and see how long it takes before liberalism runs wild in that part of the country. Okay? Or do it the other way. Take 100 families from the heart of Kansas where the the bumper sticker says, you'll excuse me, welcome to Kansas where science don't mean shit. Okay? Okay? (laughs) Okay. Sorry. And you move them to San Francisco and see how long it takes. But Americans know this, that all they have to do is see how wonderfully we run everything except in Florida. And (laughs) they will emulate us. Well, if they do, it's going to take a long, a long time. Americans do not understand Islam. Uh, a comment was made earlier. I was on a radio call in show and someone asked this question. Forgive me, I'm really answering your point, I think, sir. Can Muslims be democratic? And I paused and I say, Can Christians dance? Some can't. Can Christians eat meat on Friday? Which way do Christians face when they pray, this way or that way? And if you are thinking that Islam is monolithic, then you don't know anything about the rest of the world's religions. Because if it is true that there are 376 recognized religions in this world, then 375 of them are wrong. They can't all be right, can they? Yes, they can. Yes, they can. All right, that's, that's called faith. But Americans have a difficult time understanding that because we have accomplished what we have, everybody else should want to be exactly like us. There isn't anybody who falls into that category. They would like to have some things we have and avoid other things that we have, just as many of the people in this room. But the people who took us to Iraq did it because they believed or were convinced, which leads to the same result, that that was the path to follow and that we would be welcomed with flowers And, you know, and the cheering throngs, except for the fact that Iraq has been invaded 15 times in its recorded history, and they don't like it. And that's the problem that you're facing. They do not see it the same way we do, which is the short answer, and I've taken a long time to answer a very perceptive question. Thank you, sir.
1: Okay, next question. Um, I'd like to go back to the imminent attack on Iran um, for my question if Israel or the United States would attack Iran, is it possible that hundreds of American soldiers would be massacred within a 24-hour period? My understanding of the surge is that the soldiers are scattered in communities and if the Shiite Shiite nation of Iran is attacked, would the Shiites in Iraq feel honor-bound to um, massacre Americans, even if they had made friends with them and had been working with them. That's one. And number two. One question. Well,
0: just this, Snow, this is the part one of the question. No, one question. Okay, well. Scott. <laughs>
2: uh, yeah, I, I can't predict the future. I, I'll say this. Uh, nobody wants to stand toe-to-toe with the American fighting man. Uh, if they want to you know, try Massacre 100 Americans, 24-hour period, feel free to try. You'll die. Uh, you might get us in a month. You might get us in two months. I, I, I don't want to put a number on it. What I will say is this. Um, there, Iran has a vested interest in the future of post-Saddam Iraq. They fought an eight-year war. They suffered hard, hardships and tragedy, and they want to ensure that whatever emerges in post-Saddam Iraq doesn't uh, re-manifest itself in that which brought this eight-year war. And so Iran is heavily invested in the future of Iraq, and this means that they have a lot of influence in places where you have co-religionists. And remember, they're not, they're not the same. The the Iraqi Shia is Arab, and the Iranian Shia is Persia. And even amongst the Iraqi Shia, they refer to the Iranians as Safavids uh, because they go back in time to history where there was uh, enmity between the two people. Uh, It's not perfect. So you can't sit there and say that automatically the Iraqis will rise up and support the Iranians. But I will, will say this, that there is a tremendous amount of resentment in the Middle East about American policy. And if the United States, either directly or indirectly, using an Israeli proxy, initiates an unjustified military action against Iran, there will be consequences, and there will be spillover, and that will be inclusive of major unrest in the Shia-dominated areas of Iraq that will manifest themselves in violence that will kill Americans. It will also manifest themselves in an American response that will kill Iraqis by the thousands. Again, nobody wants to stand up and take us on uh, to, in a toe-to-toe fight. We just have, we're, we're a military force that can't be beat that way. They're killing us not by standing up and engaging in platoon-on-platoon tactics. They're killing us with bombs. Uh, but our lines of communication will be severed. Uh, that which we use to resupply our troops uh, will have to go to helicopters. We'll then get shot down by air defense. We're going up against a fairly sophisticated enemy. Uh, it may not, you may not see that because they're not bringing their A game to play right now. But uh, one only has to reflect on the Israeli experience in southern Lebanon in 2006 to understand that uh, there are people out there who have studied how we fight. They know how we fight. And when they choose to take us on, we'll show a mastery of overcoming some of our our, our tactics. Uh, We got a big enough problem in Iraq. We gain nothing by going against Iran except more tragedy. And, uh, again, I don't want to put a number on it, but... Iraq will explode in violence that will manifest itself in the deaths of Americans and Iraqis alike and will have nothing to do with engendering stability. Ask yourself this, American politician in this silly season that we have now, if you've got 100 American coffins coming home because of uh, what we term to be the, 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 the betrayal of America by the Shia of Iraq, do you think that the inclination is going to be to reduce the level of violence and withdraw? Or is the inclination going to be to accelerate the level of violence, to seek to get revenge, and to seek the ever-elusive victory?
1: Well, that was my point. No, that I'm sorry. See, we can see, no. no. see blanket bombing no. of Iran and Iraq. I want to take three and quick that's questions all I wanted to here. Say. Blanket bombing of Iraq and Three quick Iran. questions there, and then for the last uh, 10, 15 minutes, I want to open up the floor to those of you who don't have the strength to walk to the microphone. So... Go ahead.
2: Um, so not all Republicans are neocons, and I think in particular right now it's a very special election season because we do have somebody running for president who is a Republican and a Republican in the traditional traditional sense, a 1960s Republican who wants to get back to a policy of non-interventionalism who, and who understands all of our failed policies in the Middle East. And in order to answer, somebody asked the question of how do we get ourselves out of this mess, you know, how do we um, make things better, I think we should – and what do you think? My question is, what do you think about electing somebody like Representative Ron Paul, you know, for our next president to get us out of this mess? Ed?
1: Um, I,
0: had, I had the honor of being invited up to Ron Paul's office on Capitol Hill uh, four months ago to have lunch with him and a group of like-minded uh, uh, congressmen, rep- representatives. And they were discussing the kinds of issues that we're talking about here tonight because they get together once a week and bring people in to talk to them about other options, uh, keeping one of those rarities an open mind you know, on all of these kinds of things. Um, and I was very interested in the fact that he did this and that he invited me because I'm neither famous, which is unjustified, nor... <laughs> nor necessarily shatteringly knowledgeable on all these kinds of issues, but I've lived in and worked on these kinds of problems. Uh, and I fear that for the other reasons that Scott and I have mentioned here, I don't think he has much of a chance for just exactly the reasons that you mentioned, uh, uh, despite the fact that he's gotten an awful lot of really avid support uh, from all kinds of people who say, yes, let's go, let's go with this kind of a guy. He is thoughtful, he is intelligent, he is perceptive, he is rational, he is reasonable, he is flexible, and he's doomed. (laughs) You know, because that's not what the nation is looking for right now, I'm afraid. But... Interventionism, which is what we're talking about, what you were talking about, is has become so ingrained because of America's conviction as a nation that we have the answers to all of your problems if you just do it the way we tell you. Try this, and I'm off the subject just a bit, in interventionism. I'm a diplomat. You know, the definition of a diplomat, an individual who can tell you to go to hell in a manner that makes you look forward to the trip. (laughs) There's a better one, which says, a diplomat is a man who can convince his wife that she looks terrible in
2: diamonds.
0: (laughs) 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 Diplomacy is practiced in the dark, ladies and gentlemen. To test this thesis, when you get home, start going across the street or across the hall to tell your neighbors that they're raising their kids wrong. Do this four times a week for a couple of months, and your welcome will begin to erode. You can shorten that time period dramatically if you stop on the way over to tell the other neighbors how these people aren't raising their kids right, and our nation does this on an hourly basis. The ministry of so-and-so demands that they start this and they stop that and they fix this and they quit that. Hey, 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 hey. We are a sovereign nation. However small, however weak, however unsanitary, I am a sovereign nation and you treat me otherwise at cost. You can do it. You can do it. But we tell everybody how that's called interventionism. you got to stop doing that. I have gone in as a diplomat to the heads of governments and told them quite pointedly some things that we thought they should do or not do, and received rejoinders explaining why they didn't think that was a good idea. But you don't do it in public unless you want to be considered shatteringly arrogant, overbearing, and involved in issues which are not your responsibility. Ron Paul would do this, and I don't think he's going to get elected, perhaps partly for that reason because Americans want to run the world right now until they learn a bitter lesson that you can't do it, especially if you can't run your own country successfully.
2: All right, or until we run out of money. That's the other Okay, one. next. Thank you. Thank you. Okay.
1: Actually, my question is actually sort of related to hers. I'm really curious. I do think Admin is crazy. I do think Saddam Hussein was a bad man, and I think there will be more people like this, and we would have to deal with them as a nation. So I'm really curious, how,
0: how do we deal with them in a way that's rational, that's sane, and that doesn't cause problems? Because people like Jad and maybe Chavez and all these people are going to come up, but we have to deal with them. And if they do threaten in some way
1: someone's freedom, we do want the U.S. to respond in some way. So what
0: would be the best way to respond? Because I think in a way it makes it seem, okay, yeah, Saddam was bad, but everyone still had a good life. But he did kill people, and there were
1: families who did feel that pain. So how do we deal with that, I think? I'm Scott? curious.
2: You know, it, it, that's, it's, a, it's a great question. I'd, I'd like you to, you know, come up with any answer you want, and then I'll take you around the country and introduce you to families who have lost loved ones in Iraq. And then you can take your high-minded principles, and, and, and they're noble. And, uh, and explain why the chair is empty on a birthday, why a stocking's empty on Christmas, why no one's eating a turkey dinner on Thanksgiving. Explain to them every single day of their lives why their loved one's not there. Now, if they're willing to accept that they died because somebody had a disagreement with Saddam Hussein and felt that he was oppressing uh, the Iraqi people, if an American is willing to accept dying in a foreign land for these principles, that's one thing. But you know. That's a tough. You've got to come up with a pretty hefty argument, because I joined the military to protect my country. I joined the military taking an oath to my constitution. I didn't join the military to become a president's legionnaire, to go around the world and impose our values on others. Now, we can sit here and belittle Saddam Hussein, as we have done. We can talk about Ahmadinejad in, 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 in a way that isn't, uh, isn't pleasant to him. But... The last thing I want to do is get involved in the politics of demonization that lead you towards an irrational conclusion, that force, that might makes right. Because the bottom line, you think Saddam's crazy. I guarantee you right now, in Iraq, uh, they aren't viewing him as the crazy person. The way he went out, whether you like Saddam or not, like a man in front of people mocking him, saying a prayer for Palestine, by the way, his last words were talking about a free Palestine, and then they hang him. Um, you know, So your perception is one thing, but now you say because of your perception of Saddam Hussein and the brutality, we've got to go to Iraq and kill Iraqis? Your perception of Ahmadinejad, uh, we've got to go to Iran and kill Iranians? No. They have to pose a mortal threat to that which this nation stands for. And I judge Ahmadinejad this way, his words, and I'm not defending them or condemning them, go down his throat, across his shoulder down his arm to a finger. So I look for the buttons this crazy man gets to push. And I've done something called read the Constitution of Iran. It's available in the English language, just Google it, and you'll uh, read the American Constitution first. But, uh, (laughs) read, you know, what buttons can he push? And you find out he has no buttons to push. How many people here know that we don't call Iran a representative democracy and yet Ahmadinejad is a democratically elected president of Iran? We call it a theocracy because the supreme leader is the Ayatollah Khamenei. And just today, the Ayatollah challenged Ahmadinejad, who said that certain legislation was unconstitutional, and the Ayatollah intervened and said, wrong, 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 Ahmadinejad. It's gone through the process, therefore it is constitutional. Iran is a much more complicated place, and I'd hate for our nation to be engaging in policies that are derived solely from the rhetoric of a man that we might not agree with, Ahmadinejad. It's a little bit more complicated than that. That's gotcha. it. Mm-hmm.